Let's open the sacred scriptures tonight to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis 16, we will read the whole of the chapter. And the text for this evening's sermon is really verses 7 through 13. I have verse 13 as the text noted in the bulletin, but really it's broader than that. Yet the, high, the focus will be on verse 13. Genesis chapter 16, this is the inspired and therefore infallible word of our God. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children. And now let me pause there. At this point in the history, it's still Sarai and Abram. In the course of the sermon, I will almost certainly say Sarah and Abraham. You know who I mean uh, if I don't always remember to get it right according to where we're at in the history. Beginning at verse 1 again, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children. And she had an handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarai said I unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee. But Abram said unto Sarai, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarai dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. And now we'll pay special attention to verses 17, 7 and following. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's handmaid, whence camest thou? And whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress and submit thyself under her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and thou shalt bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. And he will be a wild man, his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And she spake, and she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Wherefore the well was called Beer Lahiroi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bare Abram a son, and Abram called his son's name which Hagar bare Ishmael. And Abram was fourscore and 
six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. We end our scripture reading at that point. The text is really verses 7 through 13. I will reread only verse 13. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Monday, a woman crumples to the ground the moment she walks through the door of her house. For the doctor had used that dreaded word, cancer. And as she lies there on the floor, she looks up toward heaven and says, why would you let this happen? Tuesday, a mother spends an entire day cooking food, cleaning up messes, and correcting children. And knowing that she will do the exact same things tomorrow, she wonders whether her life makes any real difference for her Creator and for her Redeemer. Wednesday, a student spends yet another recess alone on the playground and mumbles under his breath, God, why did you not give me a friend? Thursday, husband and wife crawl into bed, backs turned toward each other, ample space between them. They yelled at each other yet again. And each silently thinks, where are you, God? Friday, a young man drives home from work, steps into his empty home, and cannot help but wonder that if he were simply to vanish over the weekend, whether a soul would ever give him a moment's remembrance six months from now. Saturday, an aged saint of the church sits at home thinking to himself, what purpose do I have in life? And Father, why will You not just take me home already? And Sunday, a member of the church walks into the sanctuary, takes her seat in the pew, and prays for grace somehow, some way to focus on the Word instead of the burden that she carried into the sanctuary with her. As a pastor, I know these people. But so do you. Because we are these people. 
Those who at times feel unseen and unheard. And while your specific struggle, difficulty, trial is likely different than one of the seven we gave as examples just now, all of us know what it is to live in this fallen world. To experience the effects of sin and the curse that has come upon the creation. So that at times we too begin to wonder, does God see? Does God hear? Does God care? Tonight's sermon answers those questions. For tonight, we consider the history of Hagar, the handmaid, that is, the female servant of Abraham and Sarah. And we're interested in the history, that is, we are not interested tonight in the allegorical contrast between Hagar and Sarah that's brought out in Galatians chapter 4, but we're interested in God's own dealings with this runaway slave, with this wandering daughter. Because in looking at this history, we see the beautiful truth that our God does see. He does hear. And He does care. And so tonight's the theme for tonight's sermon is Hagar seen by the Lord. First, we'll look at the compassion for Hagar. Second, at the confession of Hagar. And then third, the comfort for Hagar's. And that's all of us. The compassion on her, the confession of Hagar, and the comfort for Hagar's. There stood Hagar, pregnant, Exhausted, upset, frightened, and alone. That's where the Lord finds her. But before we can get to the Lord coming to her, we first have to back up and ask who is this woman and how did she get here in this position by herself? Well, Hagar, as I trust we know, especially from the reading, was the female servant of Abraham and Sarah from Egypt. Verse 1 says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had an handmaid, that is a female servant, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And that notice that she's an Egyptian reminds us of the previous history recorded in Genesis chapter 12, in which during a time of famine, Abraham and Sarah had gone down into the land of Egypt. This was the first time that Abraham lied about his relationship to his wife and Pharaoh dealt well with Abraham for his wife's sake, supposing that she was merely his sister. And in that connection, we read in Genesis 12, verse 16, and he, Pharaoh, entreated Abram well for her sake, and he had sheep and oxen and he asses and men servants and Ah, uh, maidservants. 
so that almost certainly this Hagar was one of those maidservants given to Abram at that time when he was in Egypt. But now that he's left Egypt, he's brought her with them and their household. But this means for Hagar that she was delivered from whatever she was experiencing in Egypt. She was rescued out of that land of darkness and brought into the covenant community of that day. Which means she would have come to know about Jehovah God for Genesis 18 verse 19 tells us that Abraham was faithful in instructing all those in his household, including his servants, teaching them to keep God's commandments. So Hagar would have known about Jehovah God. But now at this point in the history, she's pregnant. And that's stated explicitly in verse 4, for example. And he went in unto Hagar and she conceived. That is, she became pregnant. And the occasion for this was that when God had called Abraham to sojourn in the land of Canaan, He had made to him many beautiful promises, the heart of which was that He would make of Abraham a great nation. Which nation would inherit the land that he would be a pilgrim and stranger in. But at this point in the history, he still has no son. And that's disconcerting because in order for him to his descendants to become a great nation, he first has to have a son in the first place. And now he's been in the land for 10 years, according to verse 3. He's now 85 years old, and he still has no son. And so Abram and Sarai, betraying a lack of faith, try to help God's promise along. And Sarai suggests that Abram take Hagar to himself so that Sarai can bear children through her. And now this would have been in harmony with the times and customs of that day, but it certainly was not in harmony with God's will. This was contrary to God's commandments regarding marriage. And therefore, though Hagar did become pregnant, that was not the only outcome. That was not the only result of Abram taking Hagar to himself. Because the other result, the other outcome was that this brought trouble. This was the occasion for much sin. Sin on Hagar's part. After she conceived, she developed a a sinful attitude towards Sarah. We read of that in verse 4. And he went in unto Hagar and she conceived and she saw that she had conceived her mistress, that is Sarah, was despised in her, Hagar's, eyes. She was not honoring Sarah. She had a low view of Sarah. And likely what this is indicating is that Hagar became proud that she supposed she would now have the place of preeminence in Abraham's home. But this in turn led to more sin. Sin now on Sarah's part because she begins to deal hardly with her. She goes to Abram, explains the situation, and he says, well, do whatever you want. And in the end of verse 5, Rather, the end of verse 6 we read, and when Sarai dealt hardly with her. That is, Sarah afflicted her. 
Sarah was oppressing her. And now certainly, Hagar's attitude was sinful, but that did not justify this heavy hand coming down upon Hagar. And in all of this, there's a brief lesson for us. Sin makes a mess of things. We must never suppose, we must never imagine that the path of sin is going to bring us peace or happiness or any sort of blessing. It only and always brings trouble. And it was from that trouble that Hagar flees. Verse 6, the very end, and when Sarah dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. She flees. And verse 7, we find her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way that is on the road to Shur. And understand that in fleeing, she is running away. This is not Hagar saying, you know what, I need to just step out for a moment. I need a little space. This is not her saying, I just need to take a brief vacation and then I'll go back. But she's trying to get away entirely. And likely that's why she stays alongside the road so that someone can hopefully come along that road, help her get even further away. But this was foolish on her part. Because in fleeing Abraham and Sarah, she's fleeing the covenant community. She's turning her back upon the, the church of that day. But evidently in the moment, that did not cross her mind. Or if it did, she suppressed that thought. The only thing on her mind was the pain, the difficulty that she was experiencing. And so she fled and came to this well. So do you see her there? Pregnant. Exhausted. Upset, frightened, and alone. And no doubt thinking, nobody sees me. Nobody hears me. And nobody loves me or cares about me. Child of God, can you relate to that? Have you ever been alone in the wilderness, as it were? If so, then let what happens next thrill your soul, child of God. Because of the astounding compassion that our Savior shows upon this woman. That compassion comes out in the fact that the Lord Himself comes and speaks with Hagar. Verse 7, And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. It speaks of the angel of the Lord, and this angel of the Lord is the Lord. And we know that with certainty in light of 
Hagar's own confession that she makes later on in verse 13, she says there, and she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, thou God seest me. Her confession is that this is indeed God himself. This is the Lord, not just a a messenger, an angel sent by God, coming from God's presence, but the Lord himself. And now more specifically, this is the second person of the Trinity coming to Hagar. Because within the divine trinity, if one of the three persons is going to be sent as a messenger to come to God's people in their affliction, it's going to be the Son. Even as it will be, would be the Son who came into this world in the fullness of time. So that what we have here is what we call a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. Pre-incarnate. Pre-before incarnate his incarnation that is before he truly became a man assuming a taking to himself a real human nature he would nevertheless appear at different stages in the old testament he would show up in the form of a man when he comes in the fullness of time, he assumes a true human nature. He, he really becomes a partaker of our flesh and blood. But in the Old Testament, we read of the angel of the Lord. It's the second person of the Trinity simply in the form of a man. He hasn't assumed that humanity. He hasn't clothed himself with our humanity yet, but yet he still comes. And now if we have any doubt about whether this is indeed the Son in the form of a man, we only need to look closely at this history and see, first of all, His seeking of Hagar. Verse 7 reads, And the angel of the Lord found her. And is that not the work of our Good Shepherd? Yea, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so too here, we see our Savior pursuing after one of His sheep. One of His sheep that has gone astray and He will not rest until He finds her. And that, comes, that's made, that connection is made even stronger when we read that He found her by a fountain that is a well of water. For did not our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ find another woman by a well of water? When He found the Samaritan woman by Jacob's well, He stopped there deliberately in order to bring salvation to that woman. And so too here, He finds Hagar by the well. And whether it's to convert her for the first time, or whether it's to preserve her in the salvation that he had already begun in her heart and life, he finds her by the well to save her. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on to say he found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness. And did not our Savior Jesus Christ say that as the Good Shepherd, He would leave behind the ninety and nine to go out into the wilderness to find that one lost sheep? 
And so He does that here. He pursues Hagar into the wilderness. Though she has fled from the covenant community, He seeks her out and He finds her. And when we step back and see this seeking, we say, ah yes, that's my shepherd. From His motions, I recognize Him beyond a shadow of a doubt. There's, it's unmistakable. That's the pre-incarnate Christ. But that comes out not only from His seeking, it also comes out from His speech and what He says to this woman. Because He begins speaking to her. And the first thing that He does is He convicts this wandering sheep of her sin. Verse 8, And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, whence camest thou and whither wilt thou go? Dresses her by her name. And then he states her position. Hagar, Sarai's maid. Making clear that he does not need an introduction. Making clear that he has seen and known her. Well, before she ever saw and knew him. And then he asks those two piercing questions designed to show the folly of her actions. He asks in verse 8, Whence camest thou, and whither wilt thou go? Whence camest thou, Hagar? Do you not remember God's mercy in bringing you up out of the land of Egypt? and bringing you into the covenant community. Hagar, your hope is in Abram's tents. Where are you going? Or excuse me, whence camest thou? Don't you see what you're leaving behind? Don't you see what you're giving up? And where will you go? Whither goest thou? Are you going to press on deeper and further into the wilderness to die of starvation and thirst? Or are you going to sit here by the road and wait till someone picks you up and takes you back to Egypt where you'll be under some cruel taskmaster? Hagar, don't you see that the path that you're on is the path that leads to and ends in destruction? Whence camest thou? And whither wilt thou go? Two questions designed to to show her the folly of what she's doing to help convict her of her sin. But then he doesn't stop there. He also goes on to command her. Verse 9, The angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress and submit thyself unto her hands. Now he's not here minimizing the difficulty of going back. He recognizes that this will be a matter of submission. But he calls her, but yet he calls her to a life of obedience because as we noted very briefly, the path of sin only brings trouble, and therefore he calls her back to the right path. Knowing that's what's best for her. But he doesn't just give the command and leave it there because he also comforts. He comforts with a promise. First he convicted, then he commands, and then he comforts with a promise. Verses 10 and 11. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. 
And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Ishmael. I have a blessing for you too, Hagar. You're going to have a son. And I'm going to make a great nation out of him too. And I'm going to give to him a land. He makes promises to her about her seed to comfort her, to encourage her. Yes, obedience will be difficult. But she could return with this consolation that even as God had made promises to Abram, so He made promises to her concerning her future. And again, we see in this our Shepherd Jesus Christ, we hear His voice even as we read of the words of the angel of the Lord, for does not our shepherd come to us convicting us of sin? But then having done that and assured us of forgiveness, does He not then also command us to live a life of thankful obedience unto Him for all that He's done for us? But again, He doesn't just leave it with the command. He gives Comfort, He gives us those promises to encourage us, to help us along. This is our Good Shepherd. This is the pre-incarnate Christ coming to Hagar. And if we don't see it in His seeking, if we don't see it in His speech, then we must see it in His heart. In His compassion upon her. Notice that compassion as it's expressed the end of verse 11. And thou shalt call His name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. What a beautiful statement. And a part of what makes it so beautiful is that it does not say, the Lord hath heard thy cry. The Lord hath heard thy supplication or thy request. And it does not say that because every indication is that Hagar had not yet cried out unto the Lord. Whether because it never came to her mind or whether it did come to her mind and she stubbornly refused to do it, she has not called out unto God. She's not looking to Him for help. But yet He hears her anyway. The text reads, The Lord hath heard thy affliction. Hagar, though you did not cry out, yet the Lord heard you. He heard your cries and your tears. He heard the sighs of frustration. He heard the moans of distress. So that though you did not cry out to Him, your affliction did. And He heard it. This shows us the compassion of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That He takes pity upon His people in their time of need. He's the one who sympathizes with us in our afflictions. And it's that compassion that that leads Him to to act the way He does. What explains why he, He seeks her out in the first place? What explains this speech meant to heal her soul? Well, standing behind all of that is His compassion for her. His heart toward her. And oh, what grace we see in this. 
Because what is there in Hagar? This runaway slave that would ever lead him to show such compassion and tenderness. There's nothing in her. This is grace, beloved. This is divine mercy that we see on display in this passage. So that we see our Savior Jesus Christ, at least the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord, pursuing after one of His lost sheep, finding her pregnant, exhausted, upset, frightened and alone, and restoring her soul. Revealing Himself to her so that she comes to know Him more deeply, more fully, more personally. And it was having seen Him and having come to know Him more fully that Hagar then makes the beautiful confession that she does. And that's what we want to look at next. The confession of Hagar. Especially in verse, specifically in verse 13. Having seen the Lord's compassion upon her, verse 13 we read, and she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? And now in coming to this verse, it's worth acknowledging that there's considerable debate over how to understand it. And the question is whether Hagar is expressing amazement that God saw her in her affliction. That's how the King James takes it. Or, is she expressing amazement that she was allowed to see God? That God appeared to her. That God revealed Himself to her and she was allowed to live to tell about it. Those are the two different views. And the reason for the debate is because admittedly the Hebrew is quite difficult and can be taken either way. And that applies to both halves of the verse. The, the verse begins, and she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. And in the original Hebrew, that's two words. In the English we would say, the, na- the name being used here, the way we would say it is El Roy. E-L space R-O-I. In the Hebrew, it's not pronounced that way. In the Hebrew, it's El-Ra'i. But either way, that's the name being used here. And there's debate because some say, well, this means the God of appearing in the sense that God appeared unto. He showed Himself unto Hagar. Where others say, no, the idea is this is the God of seeing in the sense that He looked upon Hagar. He, He saw her in her affliction. And then there's still more debate about whether that personal element is a part of it that comes out in the King James Version when it says, Thou God seest Me. So there's debate. And that debate carries over into the second half which is even more difficult to understand when she says, Have I also here looked after Him that seeth Me? And without getting into the details of the debate here, again, there are the two sides. She's expressing amazement that 
God showed Himself to her, or she's expressing amazement that God looked upon her, that God saw her. In the end, there is no way for me to tell you with absolute certainty what Hagar meant. Though we are taught in our seminary Hebrew, I am no Hebrew scholar, and therefore I cannot make a definitive declaration on what the original Hebrew is truly conveying. But I'm not sure I need to either. Because are not both ideas in complete harmony with the history that we read? It could very well be. Or sorry, it could go either way so that it could be that when she says he is El Ra'i, she's saying, this is the God who sees me. So that this is a confession of, dem- of God's divine omniscience. The fact that He knows all things. That nothing is hid from His eyes. Whether it takes place in the city, or whether it takes place in the wilderness. Whether it takes place on top of the highest mountain, or whether it takes place at the very, in the, the middle of a sea. God sees. God knows. He is omniscient. All-knowing. He knows all things with a perfect knowledge. But it's more than that. It's not just the truth of divine omniscience. It's the truth of God's special interest in the hearts and lives of His own. So that yes, it's true, God knows every single creature that He has created and where it is on earth and what it's doing. And yes, God knows the wicked. Both their Standing up and they're sitting down. He knows their thoughts from afar off. But yet, he has a special interest in his people. So that Hagar could very well be saying here, he looked upon me with a special interest in my affliction. He saw the inner turmoil in my heart. Though I was not looking for him, though I was not crying out to Him, yet He looked upon me and He heard my affliction. So that this is not just a general knowledge, but this is a a loving concern. A tender care. That's what's being expressed here. At least that's entirely in harmony with this history. God is El Ra'i, the God who sees me. But it could also go the other way. He is El Ra'i because He's the God who has appeared to me. Which includes the fact that He found me. When I had concluded that I was all alone, that nobody heard, nobody cared, nobody saw, He proved me wrong. Because He came to me in the hour of my deepest need. He sought me out when I least expected it. And He revealed Himself to me. He disclosed Himself to me. Though I was a runaway slave, though I was turning my back upon God and upon His covenant community, yet He found me out. And He let me see Him. He let me hear His voice. Gave to me the same privilege that He gave to to my master Abram. 
God had appeared to Abram and made all these wonderful promises and Abram was allowed to speak with him and now he's doing the same for me. A handmaid. Someone not worthy. And I'm still alive to tell about it. Because this is the God who's a consuming fire and I'm a a wretched, miserable sinner. And yet He has not consumed me. He has not destroyed me. He came to me in His compassion and His mercy. What Hagar herself meant when she used this name for God, we will have to wait until we get to heaven to find out. In the meantime, I leave it to you, child of God, to decide which interpretation you prefer. For myself, I prefer the former. God sees me. I believe the King James gets it right. And that's the truth, therefore, that I want to focus on as it applies to us and the comfort that it provides for us as Hagar's. We need this comfort. Because there are, very, there are times in which we can very much identify with Hagar. She sat down alone in the wilderness. We too experience affliction, suffering. There are stretches of our lives that are quite miserable from an earthly perspective. And it's true of all of us to one degree or another. Whether that affliction is broadly known to the church or whether no one else sitting here knows about it. And what can make it especially painful is that sometimes it's on account of our own sin and folly. Not always. It was not on account of Job's sin that he went through what he did. It was not on account of the man in John 9 that he was born blind in his sin or his parents' sin. There are times when we experience affliction without it being the direct consequence of some sin that I've committed. But for Hagar, there was a connection. Yes, she was being mistreated. Yes, there's sin all around here, but yet she is aggravating her sin by turning her back on the covenant community and running away. And so it can be for us at times that there's a connection between my sin, my folly, and the difficulty that comes upon me. But either way, in the midst of that affliction, we too sometimes feel unseen, unheard, and unloved. Nobody has any idea how hard my life is right now. Nobody knows what I put up with day after day after day. And even if they did know, I'm not sure anyone cares enough to do anything to help me. And in fact, things are so bad, I'm beginning to wonder whether God even cares. 
whether he sees me, whether he hears me in the midst of the difficulty. Child of God, that's what the devil wants you to think. That's the devil working on you. When you start to think, God does not see, God does not hear, God does not care. And it's a lie. It's not true. It's not true. Because He does see. He does hear. He does care. Monday through Sunday, when we are at a loss, when we are downcast, when our hearts are filled with confusion, hurt, shame, and grief, He never closes His eyes. He never turns and looks the other way. But He sees. And not just with that general omniscience whereby He knows all His creatures. But He sees you, child of God, with that that special interest in what that He has for His most important creatures, His blood-bought sheep. And in seeing us in our affliction, His heart is filled with compassion. He takes pity upon us. He sympathizes with us in that time of need. His eyes are full of love toward you, child of God. Because you are the apple of His eye. It's true. Because this is who our God is. He is El-Ra'i. That's not just Hagar's special name for God, but that's a name that God Himself is revealing to us through this history. God wants us to know this name. God wants to know us to know this truth about Him. That He's the God who sees me. He wants us to know and to believe that as surely as He numbers the hairs on your head and collects your tears in a bottle, So surely He weighs the heavy burden that you bear. He counts the fissures in our fragile hearts. He tallies the minutes that we lie awake on our bed at night unable to sleep. He measures the grief and the sorrow we experience. He hears the sobbing 
the crying, the sigh of frustration. And He knows that pain or that source of pain that you've never told anyone else about. But it's not just that He sees. It's also that He finds. When we are alone in the wilderness, He comes to us. He sits down with us in our suffering. He holds our trembling souls. He's not a far away Savior. He's very, very near. And He's near to us by His Spirit. The Spirit of Christ sent to live and to dwell within us. The Spirit that sometimes we even forget is there living within our hearts. But He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And that Spirit works in us to see our Shepherd once again. To remember He is with me. And the Spirit does that by means of His Word. God's revelation of Himself. His disclosure of Himself to His people. The Spirit takes that Word and applies it to our hearts. He seeks us. He finds us. And that in spite of our sin. Though we give Him a thousand reasons to say, I'm done with you. Though He has every right to say, fine, you want to run away from Me? Go to the wilderness by yourself? Fine, go ahead. But He doesn't do that. He does not entertain for a single moment the thought of abandoning us to our own sin and folly. But in His love, in His faithfulness, when we go astray in our sin, He pursues after us out into the wilderness until He finds us, puts us upon divine shoulders, and carries us all the way home. Is He not a glorious Savior, congregation? Do you see how lovely He is? He is El Ra'i, the God who sees me. And you may make that personal me because his dealings with Hagar in this history were not unique to her, but this is representative of how he deals with all of his wandering sheep who are so inclined to going astray. Child of God, let this be your comfort. Take consolation in this truth. Your God sees you. Your God hears you. And your God loves you. In and through Jesus Christ. And may the knowledge of that truth be what leads us to respond with praise and service.
praise and service because that's how Hagar responded. She praised Him. That's what she's doing in verse 13. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. She's glorifying this compassionate Savior. And may that be our response too, to call upon Him. To praise Him as El Ra'i or El Roy, however you want to say it. But then also to serve Him. Because Hagar did go back. She submitted herself to Abram and Sarah again. Clinging to the promise that God gave her while she was in the wilderness. That He had a plan not just for Abram's seed, but for Hagar's seed. And so may it be for us that we serve Him This passage is no promise that your life is going to be easy. This passage is no promise that there will be no more affliction in your life. But the truth that my God sees me, that my God hears me, that my God cares about me in the midst of the difficulties is the truth that we need to cling to by faith. So that whatever the difficulty may be, we go back to it with a renewed commitment to serve our God in light of His compassionate care for us. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, We thank Thee for the comfort found in Thy Word. And we pray that Thou will indeed comfort our hearts and souls tonight with the truth that Thou art El-Ra'i, the God who sees us. Hear our prayer and hear us in our affliction. For Jesus' sake, Amen.